0: Luke Ford here, and you are looking live on the cliffs of Sydney Harbour, where 88 of my mates during the 1980s and 1990s met their unfortunate demise. P- pretty sad about how, how damn homophobic people can be. Like, this is a story here. I had no idea, but there were packs of teens in Australia killing gay men for sport. Like, like My mates, they just go to, to the nice uh, park in, in Sydney, overlooking the Sydney Harbour after a bite to eat, a few drinks, and they go along for a little bit of anonymous gay sex. Next thing they know, they're flying through the air. It's just horrible. Please don't make any tasteless jokes or, or, or remarks in the chat. See, these guys, they, they weren't even gay. That's what people don't understand. That They just went along to the parks for ironic gay sex. It's ironic gay sex is not really gay sex. And, and the only reason they're even there is because of the stigma. It's the stigma that drove them to these desperate ironic measures just because they wanted to explore their sexuality and, and get in touch with their convict heritage. Off they go to, to the park. Next, next thing they know, they're just flying through the air. Unbelievable, I can't believe that there are all these packs of homophobic gangs, teen gangs, just rolling, rolling, rolling through Sydney parks, tossing homosexuals over the edge for sport. Wow. Wow. It's time. It's time that we move beyond this. This is just shocking. So we're looking live at the cliffs. Oh, poof, is that another one that just went by? Boy, this is is terrible. This is really, really bad. Don't do this, guys. All right. Uh... Two months ago, I did one of my typically thoughtful, tasteful videos on the need to to use dissident material responsibly. Because too many of you are just inhaling the kampf and just going off the deep end. We can't have that. I've been uh, rewatching Breaking Bad, and I feel terrible because uh, I, I introduced a friend to some dissident materials years ago, <laughs> and I like slowly, steadily, partly desensitized him. Until <laughs> so finally, I said, "Hey, we should do a book club about my <laughs> about my... <laughs> And to me, this is just like you know, interesting intellectual, you know, reading material about the like, western civilization. that my friend went all water white on me. <laughs> he started Breaking Bad, and and uh, he started like you know, cooking up the purest, you know, dissident materials in all of New Mexico, so to speak. And uh, like his, uh, his name's Eisenberg, and uh, I just I just feel bad because I gave him his first hit, but he couldn't use couldn't use the comp responsibly. I guess not everyone can. I mean, I was just like trying to share with him an intellectual journey. You know, this will be like stimulating, cognitively stimulating. We'll understand how Western civilization made some bad choices in the twentieth century, and uh, we'll become more more sensitized to, you know, to to evil, so that we can fight it more effectively. So, so we, we first need to understand you know, the origins of the evil and how good people got sucked into the evil, so that we can warn the young people about the evil. And this is you know, this is how the evil presented itself in, in Germany in the 1930s. So, I was just trying to do a mitzvah. Damn, they went all went all Heisenberg on me. So, what's important, guys, is if you are gonna you're gonna indulge in the dark arts, okay, if you are gonna. You're going to consume dissident material, right? If you're going to learn about hate facts, why don't they just do it? You know, in moderation. They do it responsibly. They don't do it while you're driving. Um, just you know, all good things in, in moderation. But uh, I created an Heisenberg, and, and yet I just find it funny. I find it funny, but but how am I finding this funny? Well, I guess not everyone can use the conf responsibly. But guys, if I if I drop some some red pills on here, please you know use it responsibly. Don't then say things to upset your mother, and you know, don't, don't troll online and. Don't don't take off the normies and don't horrify your colleagues and your friends. You know, don't lose any friends. Don't lose your job over it. Like, don't don't quit your six figure job to start driving for Uber so you can discuss the JQ and the culture and critique. All right, that's that's a bad idea. Like, don't go you know, shaving your head, man. Once you start reading these distant materials and just going all Eisenberg. Like, why can't people just why can't people just uh, use knowledge in a responsible, <laughs> responsible manner, man? Like, like just you know use a little bit to uh, you know recreationally. Why can't people? Just use, you know, this this information just recreationally. Just use it for for giggles, guys. You know, just just have a good chuckle with it. Like like you don't have to go for Heisenberg. Okay, don't don't go quitting your jobs to drive for Uber, to to talk about the the JQ. All right. So uh, you know, just just like if you want to consume a little dissident material, you know, maybe just do it on weekends. Maybe you know, try to stay away from the hard stuff. You know, maybe maybe um, well at least weekdays. Nothing nothing n- nothing more hardcore than VDARE. All right. And then and then on weekends. Okay, if you, if you have to like dip into a little bit of American Renaissance, but you got to you got to. The danger of that is, is that American Renaissance a gateway drug, and uh, you may think that you've got this all under control, but then you go from American Renaissance and and you start, you know, hitting the right stuff, and uh, and you start going to pool parties and book burning parties, and you know, maybe it's you know, probably best if you, if you're married with kids uh and you've got a good job and a good life and a nice position yeah american renaissance is dangerous man it's a total gateway drug so if you've got you got a good life if you've got things to protect probably best don't don't consume anything harder than uh than tucker carlson okay so if you want to be like really edgy you know you can listen to the ben shapiro podcast but like why does anyone need to be any more right-wing than ben shapiro so, so probably just just keep it to uh tucker carlson like if you've got things to things to protect and if you're you know f- free and fancy for it and you know no, no obligations then uh yeah, you, know, you don't you don't have people who care about you, and so they're not going to like be like totally let down and, and devastated. You know, when the expose comes out in the local paper about the the neo the neo the neo dude next door, then uh, then if you've got no obligations, you've got nothing to lose, then sure, you know. Okay, so this got a critique by uh, Paul Talk. He titled it "One Man's Adventure Beyond Good and Evil." So let's play this. They're radicalizing our youth. I find it funny. <coughs> You guys get morally desensitized. So <laughs> not everyone can use the comp responsibly. Explosions of blind hatred, bigotry, racism, and anti-Semitism. <clears throat> it rewires your neural pathways. Now people get hurt, bro. <laughs> now, people get hurt. They get a, a taste of this this distant material and they, they take a to take a hit. I gave him his first hit. He couldn't use he couldn't use the comp responsibly. I guess not everyone can. Why can't people just use you know this this dissident information just recreationally, just use it for, for giggles, guys? Just have a good chuckle with it. This is just like, you know, interesting intellectual you know, reading material about the course of Western civilization. Not everyone can use the comp responsibly. I was just like trying to share with him uh the intellectual journey now, this will be like stimulating cognitively stimulating I find it funny but but how am I finding this funny N- nothing more hardcore than V dare it becomes the highlight of your day okay, so we had uh, quite a time in the the comments section today, so let's uh, let's go through that so. Here's my perspective, if, if I introduce someone to alcohol, I say, hey, have a drink, and then they become an alcoholic, what moral responsibility do I have? I would contend none, zip, zero, zilch. If I introduce someone to gambling and they become a gambling addict, again, I take no responsibility for that. If I mention a porn star, and as a result, someone Googles her and then becomes a porn addict, I take no responsibility for that. I only take responsibility for that, which is my responsibility, which is my behavior and my words. So I'm not invested in your life. If you make terrible choices, that's on you. Your ups and your downs are your responsibility. They're not my responsibility. I want you to flourish. I want to be a positive influence. But in the final analysis, if it is to be, it is up to you. Like, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And one of those things I cannot change is you. I can't control anyone but me. And... And, and I, I don't see it as being particularly righteous to claim responsibility for things that are not my responsibility. Now, I get how that's a very mor- morally appealing pose. I, I I get that. It's like, oh, you know, I feel so responsible. I, I took my friend out for, for drinks one night. And then three years later, he was an alcoholic and uh, living behind a trash dumpster. And it's all my fault. OK, so I, I think that's absurd. I think it's pretentious. I think it's nonsense. And... I think it's morally destructive if you start taking responsibility for things that aren't your responsibility you're not making a better world you are getting confused about reality so all we can control is our own behavior yes we can have an influence on people and uh, we should try to to have a positive influence on people but influence is a long 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 way in fact it's a completely different word than responsibility if i tell you to go suck off a dog and you go suck off a dog that's not on me that's entirely on you. If you were idiotic enough to do that, that's on you. Even if I made all sorts of videos explaining how wonderful this is and how it's a preventative from various diseases and how it enhanced your social status, if you go out and do something that crazy, that's entirely on you. Entirely on you. And apparently, this is a radical Nietzschean position that I'm taking. So, apparently, personal responsibility for your adult choices as an above average IQ man is, is a Nietzschean insight from the, from the 19th century. Okay, so Paul talk responds, introducing the drugs, gambling port, you are the wrong crowd to run with why why yeah i mean i don 't drink i 've never done drugs i 've been porn free for for a decade. Uh, to me that doesn 't even begin to to grapple with the point that I made, so it 's kind of interesting as we scroll through here. Paul makes you know, very serious points, but uh, very serious points that simultaneously cannot be argued with, so his points basically depend on. Uh, my show has an unhealthy influence on people and it's bad for their souls so how can you argue whether or not the, the show is good or bad for someone's soul or whether or not it has a healthy or an unhealthy influence uh, you can't you can't argue with that all right so i'm just trying to understand where he's coming from that that he believes it's my responsibility if i tell someone to to read a book and then as an adult male i'm thinking about one friend he's at least two standard deviations above average in IQ. adult male married you know kids wonderful life uh, prestigious position in life uh, someone about age 40 or older someone then goes uh, reads a book that i recommend and it completely disorients him so that uh, he then begins a lot of uh, troll posting online I take no responsibility for that. None. That's entirely his choice. That's entirely on him. Entirely. Uh, uh, Is is this a a Nietzschean, radical Nietzschean position that was just brand new to the 1960s? Okay, g'day mate, 40 here. I I am live, just just playing some some oldies but goodies. So there's a whole stoat holocaust going on in New Zealand, and absolutely nobody's talking about it, because everyone's afraid of the New Zealand lobby. Everyone's afraid, oh, if you go up against the Kiwis, you'll never eat lunch in this town again. Everyone's just ceding our cultural, political, and moral high ground to the New Zealanders who are always sticking their nose into things that are none of their business, they're they're pushy, they're trying to take over our culture, and and they've got a Holocaust going on in their own country. They're trying to wipe out super predators, they're going after the humble stoat, they're going after brown rats and possums, even black rats, incredibly racist stuff going on in New Zealand. And why are they wiping out these super predators? racism they want to protect native wildlife right they prefer native wildlife to you know other wildlife it's just it's just so wrong it's so bad okay hurry up i'm going to do a show here i mean there's there's a genocide going on in new zealand Uh, no one's no one's talking about it everyone thinks it's great that uh, new zealand is is working on making the country predator free i mean how racist is that Uh, isn't that just like you didn't Ryan I mean Jufri. I mean, is it, is there really any well, difference?
1: She's a kiwi bird,
0: New Zealand's national symbol. This she's makes also me sick. flightless. Absolutely sick. Along with
1: other New Zealand bird species, they are easy pickings it? for rats, stoats, and predators. And many of these unique this species are now endangered. That's because historically, Ranked New Zealand was a bird haven, having split away from the ancient supercontinent called Gondwanaland before mammals evolved.
0: I thought we got past this. So
1: these little guys used to be dominant and had little to fear. But then, eight hundred years ago. That all changed.
0: So- is he talking about Anglos here? I mean, is he just trying to prepare the way for some plan to, to get rid of Anglos? because When humans
1: arrived, they brought these uh, terrestrial mammals that uh, walk on four legs and hunt by smell. And that was something very new to our birds, which we're used to being hunted by sight. And so when a bird freezes to avoid being...
0: This is another Holocaust. I mean, this is what Jews have suffered so many times. And and let me just tell you, as a Jew, I'm just so much more morally sensitive than you are. I'm just so much more morally superior. When I converted to Orthodox Judaism, I got this whole moral sensitivity kit along with a uh, money lending kit. It, it was awesome so i'm reading this uh, new book on jacob taub's professor of apocalypse let me tell you about what was going on in switzerland right do you even know about the precarious position of swiss jury so jews in switzerland in the 1930s they were few in number they were far less prominent in swiss life than were their counterparts in germany austria france and guess what the swiss were committed to keeping it that way all right even in zurich it had the largest concentration of jews they only made up 1.7 percent of the population compared to 10% in cities like Berlin and Vienna. Think about how much more prosperous and lively and more vibrant Zurich could have been with a 10% Jewish population or a 40% or a 70% or a 90% Jewish population. I mean, that place would have been totally rocking. So there are only 20,000 Jews across the entire country. I mean, how racist is that? Jews constitute less than half a percent of the Swedish population and only half of those possess Swiss citizenship. The rest were classified. Guess how they were classified? as foreigners so switzerland was sparing and granting citizenship rights especially to jews and especially to jews of eastern european origin All right, i mean how racist is that so in 1894 the swiss government banned the kosher slaughter of meat ostensibly on the grounds of animal protection and you've got other countries doing the same thing now banning kosher slaughtering but we really know what's going on they want to they want to discourage the ongoing migration of jews into the country and prefer native people to jewish immigrants just like they're trying to prefer in New Zealand, like native forms of life compared to immigration life. Like, who's to say that one type of bird is better than another type of bird? Like, what, what makes like natives superior to those who feel in their heart that they're really New Zealanders? I'm totally sick of the way that the New Zealand lobby is completely distorting public discourse in this country. They, they dominate our foreign policy. Our whole foreign policy is distorted because of the New Zealand lobby. I mean, we were attacked on 9 11 by Al Qaeda in primary reason because of the new zealand lobby and everyone's too frightened to say anything about it like this genocidal regime that's trying to make his country predator free and and they're trying to tell us you know how how we should speak and how we should behave and and they're trying to censor us and, and people who speak out against the new zealand lobby right they get their careers squashed i mean there's a whole new zealand lobby organization that goes around and they find anyone who speaks out like college students who speak out against the new zealand lobby well, they just destroy their careers. They just, the New Zealand lobby is so influential in hiring people are afraid that they won't be able to get jobs if they stand up to the New Zealand lobby. Don't be afraid.
2: Interaction is when people with guns try to overthrow the government,
1: not a single person.
0: Okay, good Hey, May 40 here. Just wanted to enjoy some of the, the greatest hits from from the, the past. I'm drawing up a collection of highlights of what I think are my best posts and my best videos. So I'd, I'd appreciate your suggestions i'll uh link that in the, the the video description so as as you know I, i've lived my life like a candle in the wind no, never knowing who to turn to when what uh like a candle in the wind never knowing who to turn to when the the, the rain sets in something like that right never knowing who to cling to when the rain set in uh Loneliness was tough, the toughest role I ever played. And and they made you change your name? Yeah, they made me change my name. Like, my name is 40, all right? But is that good enough for our white bread overseers? W- would they allow me to just put 40 on my driver's license? No. They gave me the, the slave name of Luke Ford. But I'm not Luke Ford. I'm 40. They told me, oh, you should wear a yarmulke. When you're out and about, it it might arouse anti Semitism. I was like, I gotta be me, I gotta be 40. They said, well, at least, at least tuck your fringes in. Don't wear your fringes out. Like, try to keep your fringes hidden. I said, no, I gotta be 40. And then the newspapers, all right, all they write about me is that, you know, I banged this porn star, I banged that porn star. You know, I was found in the nude here, you know, I was getting blowjobs there. But that's not what I'm really all about. I mean, yeah, I did those things, but. I, I guess they just can't sell newspapers talking about the Talmudic tractates that I've studied. They can't tell sell newspapers talking about the people I've sponsored into, you know, emotional sobriety. They can't tell, you know, big stories in the newspapers about the people I've helped to, you know, overcome under earning and overcome debting and overcome, you know, wanking addiction. All right. That's not gonna sell newspapers. Bloody hell. Okay. So I read the news today. Oh boy apparently did you guys know this vladimir putin is vulnerable my god putin is vulnerable it's it's all in the news right we need to get informed about the news right he, he's vulnerable
2: in the early morning hours on saturday this was the first indication vladimir putin was facing the greatest challenge to his 23-year rule in russia Mercenaries from the Wagner private army appeared on the streets of Rostov-on-Don, a city of one million and a crucial command center for the war in Ukraine. They faced no resistance. The hostile rhetoric between Russia's military leaders
1: and Wagner's chief, Yevgeny Pergozhin, had boiled over
3: earlier in june uh sergey shoigu the defense minister issued an edict and basically said that all wagner troops have to sign contracts with the ministry of defense which would effectively remove them from Prigozhin's command those who watch this area
0: closely okay so yeah i, I agree vladimir putin fears for his life vladimir putin is vulnerable you know who else is vulnerable 40. all right I walk around typically with a smirk on my face because, you know, my life's going great. Uh probably six days out of seven, I am up and at it at three AM. I got up at three AM this morning. I, I dug up twenty-three of my classic spicy videos from twenty eighteen and and I put them I put them on Rumble. I mean some great stuff on here. I probably uploaded a hundred of my of my old videos. I put them on Rumble here. So I found uh, Christopher Cantwell versus Coach Red Pill, found Kevin Michael Grace on the coming Civil War, found illegal immigration challenges the West, Christopher Cantwell versus Andy Worski. Israeli Prime Minister freezes UN deal to send African migrants to Western countries from April 2nd, 2018. Christopher Cantwell interviews Hunter Wallace from April 7, 2018. The coming war with China, July 25, 2018, Kevin Michael Grace on the World Cup and Marijuana legalization, all right, June 18, 18. Trump sees winning hand as critics see presidency spiraling down, December 25, 2018. Toby Young's public humiliation, reflections on Unite the Right 2. Three-part video series on Old height versus Richard Spencer from September 3, 2018. In-depth analysis from Babylon, Babylonian Hebrew and company. My interview with John David Ebert on The Witch and the Astral Plane. When Price still mattered, a life of Vince Lombardi. You got Otto Paul, Kevin Michael Grace there. Three-hour analysis of R.H.S. Stolfi's book Hitler Beyond Evil. Uh, Daily Beast essay on Ayanna Presley. Brett Kavanaugh talk radio theater Thursday. And my friend Justin Levine. He was a, an attorney. Represented me. Defended me in three of my libel lawsuits. And then who can forget that the classic when porn still mattered. The Luke Ford story from September 9, 2018. Uh, massive multi-hour, three-hour coverage of the Pittsburgh Synagogue massacre. Coverage from 2018 of the book by Eli Saslow. Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. This is the uh, Derek Black, the, the child of uh, Don Black, compatriot with David Duke. Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting Kills 11. In-depth analysis. All right so 23 classic videos i put up about 100 spicy videos from the the 2015 to 2018 days up on my Rumble and i'm starting a collection of you know my my best work and i'm how do i get up at 3am just like full of full of life full of love all right just ready to share like sharing is caring sharing these old you know undiscovered lost and forgotten classics all right that is caring How do I do it? How do I go to bed at 9 p.m.? Up and at it at 3 a.m. And it's because it's not just the spiritual component. It's not just the cold showers. It's not just the modafinil. It's not just the beef organ capsules. It's not just 12-step sponsoring and being sponsored. It's not just 12-step meetings. It's not just prayer and meditation. It's not just healthy amounts of exercise and healthy food and drinking green drinks. No, there are a lot of beautiful women in my life. And I flirt with them, and I talk with them, and I sing and dance with them. Sometimes I even touch them, but only in a wholesome way. They will, they will t- be the first to tell you that my touch is much more benedictory than, than penetrative, to quote the, the history boys. But just the prospect of seeing all these beautiful, lovely, adorable, fantastic, amazing, stimulating, funny, wise, challenging women, like, you know, or every day, like, ah, I love it. And it just fills me with energy. And I just want to, I just want to share with you, you know, all the great things in my life, but I'm incredibly vulnerable. I was running. I was singing. I was listening to music, you know, running through Beverly Hills the other day. And suddenly I got really dizzy. Like I I felt like I was just about to collapse, but this is it. This is the end. I'm about to have a total collapse and, and I stopped running and the the dizziness went away. It, it hasn't returned. But just like out of nowhere, I'm feeling great. I, I'm running, and then suddenly this you know overwhelming dizziness just just hits me. And then you know I look at the news on my phone, and it talks about how for about five percent of the population, if they vigorously exercise, they're at great risk of a stroke. So no matter who you are, you're incredibly vulnerable. I've interviewed thousands of people in my life, and the common denominator to all interviews is I notice when I get to know people how vulnerable they are. You know, from Elon Musk to Joe Biden to Donald Trump to Ron DeSantis to Vladimir Putin to Rishi Sunak to Colin Liddell to Richard Spencer. Like, we're all incredibly vulnerable. Like, I, I was running along and suddenly this dizziness, you know, fit hits me and I thought it was all over right there. You know, my, my smirk suddenly faded all right i wasn't smirking when when the world just started swimming and i I thought i was about to collapse so yeah vladimir putin's vulnerable we're all vulnerable because we're all gonna die and life is unpredictable there are just constant changes and challenges we we rely on people and then they die they move they they change and the things that we've been using to support us you know disappear we get may get a great deal of meaning from you know, our physical strength and then we get sick and that goes away. We may get a great deal of meaning from our social community and then we may fall out with our social community. We may get most of our meaning from our profession. Then we might lose our profession. We may get a great deal of meaning from our family and then we become alienated from our family. So yeah, Vladimir Putin is vulnerable. Everybody's vulnerable. You're vulnerable. I'm vulnerable. You know, it could all end tonight. Let, let, let's get, uh, I like this guy, Vlad Bexler. I played a little bit of him yesterday. Pathetic
3: and wobbly. Um, Putin's speech. I've written it in the form of a, a Twitter thread that'll actually help us, as always, get, get through the points quickly. It lasted just over five minutes, I think. Putin's speech reveals weakness and new possibilities is just the old point for the politicization of the Russian space. Don't exaggerate this. Don't think that the depoliticized blob in the middle is going to dissolve or that there's going to be a revolution in Russia. Not at all. But though we shouldn't exaggerate this crack in Putin's aura of legitimacy, which we talked about in the video in the main channel yesterday, that crack is there, he knows about it, and it's irreversible. Still, I see that Putin is feeling incandescent rage at Prigozhin. this image of a dictator overthrown via a a mutiny of a certain kind, a mutiny that's got out of control. is an ultimate nightmare for Putin. So he feels incandescent rage at Prigozhin that came through again, betrayal is the highest moral crime for Putin and his relationship with, with betrayal is traumatic in my view now of course Prigozhin wasn't trying to replace Putin but Prigozhin generated a potentially revolutionary situation that's how I put it um, and if that situation had gone further it's not clear what Prigozhin would have done although the odds are that he, he would have been handled eventually by the state and by the regime But I'm saying here Putin spoke as though Prigozhin's march presented an existential threat to his life. I'm confident about that psychological observation about Putin. He spoke with the wobbliness of somebody who felt that his power was in danger and his life relatedly too. The message to the Wagnerites who participated in the march is extraordinary and its weakness won't, you know, go unnoticed. He roughly said that you've done something so terrible but I forgive you. The I forgive you bit is implied, but very strongly implied in various things he said. So those of you who accept that you've made a mistake, these are pretty much his words, can sign up with the MOD, can just go home, or can go to Belarus. And we're gonna see what that means because we, we don't know. Um many experts' assumption was that if Prigozhin goes to Belarus, that's not the same as Prigozhin going to Belarus with some Wagner folks and accompanying him in numbers, because it's not clear how that would be acceptable to anybody, including Lukashenko. So what that means, Putin is telling them you can go to Belarus, we have to follow of course revolutions we know are impossible for mr putin they have to be expressions of malign foreign interference and so putin's notion of organic revolution
0: hey, so vladimir putin seems to, to me to have done more with the cards he, he's been dealt than any other leader of a major country in the past uh, 25 years so i think he's been pretty effective leader for russian interests and so I, i'm not buying that you know he's about to lose it all he's about to be killed he's about to be overthrown yet I got to recognize it could happen. So, well, what is the answer? Says two cents in the chat. The answer is reality always wins. We're all incredibly vulnerable. Reality is infinitely more complicated. than We can possibly comprehend. It can all end for us at any moment. Everything that we rely on can go away. And here's the answer. One, one answer to your question. There are four stages of life that we're always just moving into and out of, right? Where you know, there's one stage, which is just vulnerability. Uh, just, you know, feeling lost, small in a, in a big world, incredibly vulnerable. Uh, there's the stage of feeling, you know, grandiose, where you, you've really, you know, got, got the world at, at your feet. There's the stage of mastery where you're learning. Uh, there's a stage of just utter helplessness and we're always in you know one stage or another and we just, we never graduate from any of these stages so you might feel absolutely helpless today and then you know one thing goes right for you and you suddenly regain your mojo or you may feel a sense of mastery and then your back goes out and you become totally helpless or you may be cruising along and you might be hit by a crying jag and just feel an overwhelming sadness uh, depression hitting u- unexpectedly and you just feel incredibly small in a big world. So we'll always be one of these four states: like feeling helpless, feeling you know lonely, small in a big world, uh, feeling a sense of mastery, or you know feeling grandiose that you know feeling more than what we really are. And whatever state we're in, we can always work on mastery. All right, we can always become more accepting of reality, more more effective at uh, negotiating reality. But we never get to graduate from vulnerability we never become immune to being helpless sad you know lost and, and lonely at times of course the, the better a support system you have you know the better I- your approach to life the more you're a friend to yourself I- the more effectively you'll you'll navigate these various stages so a lot of you are saying by now 40 we are 31 minutes and 22 seconds into this stream and you haven't even played any scintillating content from decoding the gurus fix that
2: right now real world responsibility but i also
0: okay so this is medical doctor and author jonathan howard he's got a new book out on covid it's called we want them infected so this was the response of a lot of dissidents you know we want we want everyone to get infected they'll create herd immunity so here he is he 's a psychiatrist,
1: or things that you know afterwards kind of saw as as pointing to a susceptibility, or is it more that actually there wasn 't and it could apply just as much to any other colleague that, you know, you wouldn't have singled her out as especially likely to go that route. I wouldn't have signaled her out. You know, at the time, I didn't really think about the anti-vaccine movement.
2: It was kind of like the Bigfoot movement. I mean, whatever. Some people, you know, thought about this sort of stuff. You know, she was a little bit sort of rebellious, which is not a bad trait. But, you know, like I said, when I knew her, we treated sick people together in the hospital. And you can't use magical thinking when you actually have real world responsibility. But I also witnessed her sort of escalation. You know, when she first started out, it was sort of, you know, vaccines cause autism. Ooh, Oh, my gosh, what a you know crazy wild thing for a doctor to say, you know, fast Fast forward a few years, she's denying that viruses even cause illness. She.
0: So, how do you build an audience right here, right now? You, you don't build an audience by telling them that the establishment's done something right. You only build an audience, right, doing you know live streams by wailing against the establishment, by railing against the experts and the institutions, by saying what a terrible job you know our politicians are doing, what a terrible job our establishment is doing, what a terrible job the universities are doing, what. A, terrible job public you know, teacher unions are, are doing right those are the incentives right to just uh, bewail our establishment bewail our institutions but really come on guys we we love our institutions and our establishment don't we i mean they're, they're the best right we love our cops and our law enforcement how does that go what's that baked alaska song anyway all right those are the incentives when you do what i do But I don't want to sell out for those incentives and you know, build an audience on the basis of bad epistemics.
2: He is saying that vaccine campaigns are a depopulation campaign and just constantly, constantly escalating. And I just saw it repeat itself in in fast motion, this pandemic, with people who started out, you know, potentially realistic, now saying, you know, totally crazy things. Now, I also say it really engendered a passionate dislike for anti-vaccine doctors in particular. I sort of became obsessed is a strong word, but I got to read about all of them and learned about all of them. Sherry Tenpenny, Suzanne Humphries, Bob Sears, Larry Poleski, and obviously Andrew Wakefield. And I I just developed sort of a a bitterness almost uh, in in the sense that I think they're sort of like arsonist firefighters, which are a real thing too. Uh, And, you know, so I I had a very strong dislike for doctors who spread anti-vaccine misinformation. I, I came into the pandemic with that fully formed.
4: Yeah, Chris and I share your disdain there. Like with a lot of the people we cover, you know, sometimes they could they could have all kinds of personality problems. But if they're doing harmless things, you can give them a pass. But with the anti vax stuff, and you can point to actual large numbers of people dying as a result of it it's, it's hard to have a sense of humor about it but before we get into the COVID stuff jonathan i want to ask you about what's your personal opinion in, in, in a nutshell as to as to how and why like intelligent well-educated people can become so deluded about things that would, would seem to be you know have a clear-cut evidentiary basis chris and i joke to each other that just highly educated people just uh, just get the skills to be wrong in more complicated ways but um what do you think I don't have a great satisfi-
2: satisfactory answer. I mean, I think, you know, exactly what you said, that you kind of have to be smart to come up with with some conspiracy theories. I, I think a lot of it just has to do with the sort of psychological need to feel different, that if everyone else is saying A, you have you to say B. I don't. In other words, let's say vaccines were banned tomorrow. I predict that there would you know, or let's say they had been banned, you know, in, in 2010. You know, Dr. Brogan and her ilk would be saying, oh, they're a suppressed miracle cure because doctors make more money treating disease than preventing disease. So, so I think it's a little bit just about being different for the sake of being different because, Nothing is more boring than saying you should vaccinate your children against measles, HPV and polio. Like no one came up to me and patted me on the back and said, Oh, wow, you're such an amazing, brave, independent thinker for, for doing that sort of thing. You know, I didn't get spoken to by Gwyneth Paltrow. I didn't get, you know, which she did, you know, I, I didn't, you know, become sort of a mini celebrity up until other than my books. This is the only thing I've ever sold. You know, I don't have an online store, an online course that people can take. She does. She has all of that sort of stuff. So I think it's a combination of just the, the satisfaction of feeling that you're smarter than everyone else. You know more than everyone else while well, being able to monetize that is kind of a nice side effect. And none of these people and this is a big theme of my writing really have any real world responsibility for the consequences of their words you know dr brogan is not the one in the hospital treating children who got sick with measles
0: and this is a great point all right people who live stream rarely have any real world responsibilities all right so the dissidents that you enjoy on podcasts and live streams right they're not people with real world responsibilities anything akin to what public health officials have so we're in the peanut gallery, and, and we're throwing peanuts at the people who are paid to perform for the benefit of the general public. So perhaps we should have some humility, right? I mean, I, I love throwing peanuts at people as much as the next guy, but uh, maybe a little humility. is was in New mind. York
2: City in 2019, and very few of the doctors that I mentioned treat, treated COVID patients.
4: Yeah, and of course, Jonathan, you were at the front lines in a new hospital treating the first wave of COVID patients, weren't you?
2: Yeah. You know, so, so that experience was brief, but intense. You know, I, I volunteered to work on the COVID unit uh, and, you know, as did tens of thousands of other people, this was sort of nothing heroic. I mean, people traveled from, from all over the, the city to, to be here. Uh, you know, the, the only reason I say, I stress that I volunteered is one of the doctors who I write about reacted to my, my book by saying that doctors were selfish for trying to stop the spread of COVID during the first wave because we were doing it to protect ourselves and keep ourselves safe. And, yeah. you know, we were surrounded by COVID. We were, you know, you know, a couple extra patients here and there weren't going to keep us safe. And, you know, so I volunteered to work, uh, you know, on the COVID unit. So I wasn't doing anything to keep myself safe you know in looking back a few things i'm not really sure that i did a lot to be honest with you for my patients other than be nice to them which was very important because they were alone and they were without their family so i you know i spent time
0: okay this is decoding the gurus christopher cavanaugh matthew brown a couple of academics here talking to medical doctor and author jonathan howard let's play a little bit more here from this podcast interview
2: day and as the death toll piled up he started spreading which i what i can only describe as conspiracies that people were dying with covid not of covid that death certificates couldn't be trusted that it was premature
0: what do i say be specific to people who've gotten five booster shots and still get covid Uh, anyone who claims that if you get a covid booster shot you'll never get covid is a moron now With public health advice, you often have to dumb it down to communicate to morons. And so there's been some moronic public health advice. But there's nothing that anyone with a familiarity with the the flu shot or with COVID boosters will claim that this is going to protect you from, you know, 100% from getting COVID. What it does do is that it may well reduce your chances of getting COVID. And significantly, it does clearly. Significantly reduce your chances of being hospitalized or dying from COVID. So, even if it made no difference to whether or not you get COVID, and I don't believe that's true, I believe it reduces your chances, it makes a very significant chance with regard to being hospitalized and with regard to dying. It may even possibly reduce transmissibility. So, to me, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming that uh, COVID vaccines, like all the other vaccines approved for use in the United States, are overwhelmingly a good thing. That there are at least 100 times more advantages to getting vaccinated to staying unvaccinated. With that said, of course, there will be occasionally very negative reactions to the COVID vaccine, just like sometimes people will die because they wore a seatbelt. So overall, seatbelts save lives. In rare situations, seatbelts cost lives. But you have to look at these things on the net. On the net, wearing a seatbelt puts you in a safer position than not wearing a seatbelt. Overall, getting vaccinated puts you in a safer position than not being vaccinated.
2: Were intubations that were killing people anyway, and it was lockdowns that were killing people. And the people who were actually dying of COVID were just, you know, 95-year-olds with metastatic cancer who had two days left to live anyway. And these themes persist to today. So how can you tell who's reliable and who isn't? Well, it took me a year to figure out that John Ioannidis was kind of not someone to trust. And most of that was just his reputation. It was a very cognitively dissonant time for me because, you know, here, this very brilliant world-famous epidemiologist making these very confident predictions. What do I know? I'm just a neurologist. I can look at a brain MRI, that's for sure. But what do I know about an epidemiology during a pandemic? But so, you know, I was reading his statements on the one hand and hoping they were true. Oh, my God, I was hoping they were true, that the pandemic was almost over in April 2020. But then sort of seeing, you know, how do I square this with what I see in my own eyes? Uh, And it took me a year to write my first science-based medicine article. And I think to answer your question, um, and this is one thing that I have observed about all the people that I write about, I didn't make this explicit, maybe I should, but is that they feel comfortable commenting on every aspect of the pandemic, on masks, on vaccines, on lockdowns, on mandates, on steroids, on remdesivir, on every.
0: Right. He could be talking about live streamers and podcasters here, like people who do what I do, claim expertise on all sorts of topics where we're not experts, where usually we've had no real world responsibility for the the health and welfare and safety of large numbers of other people, yet we're in the peanut gallery claiming all sorts of expertise that we don't have. This is a great rant. Let me play it again. I
2: see in my own eyes. Uh, and it took me a year to write my first science-based medicine article. And I think to answer your question, um, and this is one thing that I have observed about all the people that I write about, I didn't make this explicit, maybe I should, but is that they feel comfortable commenting on every aspect of the pandemic.
0: So I remember someone I used to live stream with who was a professor who was in a very prestigious position, uh, married with, with kids, And I noticed that he would frequently make public pronouncements on my show and elsewhere in public on books and essays he had never read. And I said, bro, that's like, that's really bad, right? Uh, The the kind of arrogance to claim expertise on areas where you're not expert, to pronounce judgment on on books that you have not read, on people that you don't know much about, on... uh, journal articles that you you haven't read you know this is a real warning sign of some serious defects in your character and of course he he went on to just blow everything up so this is a really common problem with with people who go online and share their comments because as soon as you step online and start sharing your thoughts you're very likely to get an exaggerated sense of your own wisdom an exaggerated sense of your own perspicacity an exaggerated sense of you know your own importance you're very likely to share things that you would normally keep keep private uh, you're very likely to, you know, make all sorts of you know, false claims and to present yourself in a false light because it's just so intoxicating to, you know, create this e-personality. What he's talking about here, Jonathan Howard, right, he's fair dinkum. Howard is a psychiatrist, he's got credentials, he's, he's published books, he's published learned essays, and he is rightly calling out those nutters in positions like mine who claim all sorts of expertise that we don't have.
2: Hear him again. To answer your question, um, and this is one thing that I have observed about all the people that I write about, I didn't make this explicit, maybe I should, but is that they feel comfortable commenting on every aspect of the pandemic, on masks, on vaccines, on lockdowns, on mandates, on steroids, on remdesivir, on every aspect of the pandemic. They can speak about it at length, right or wrong, you know, childhood speech development patterns due to masks. They're experts in that now. You know, and I think that's, you know, back to what I was saying about me not being a guru. I don't talk about masks. I don't talk about ventilation. I don't talk about school closures or lockdowns or really anything because I don't really know that stuff. All I really talk about is vaccines. And again, I think that's one of the...
0: Yeah. So it's a big warning sign. Certainly for me, when I'm having having guests on, and they start opining about things they know nothing about but they're they're not open about their low level of knowledge. Instead, they're claiming all sorts of expertise that they don't have. Question in the chat. Uh, John Ioannidis is not trustworthy. Really, Stanford is just a backwater university, bro. Guess what? Even the most prestigious universities have people who are untrustworthy in some areas. John Ioannidis is trustworthy in some areas. He is a complete nutter in other areas. I am trustworthy in some areas. I am a complete nutter in other areas. I am wise in some things. I am a total moron in other things. I am moral in some situations. I am highly immoral in other situations. I am courageous at times. I am a coward at times. Right? Nobody is just uh, you know wonderful in all situations. So COVID, you know, revealed John Ioannidis, uh, his weak points, and then he reacted when he got criticised. By claiming hey you know i'm this great scientist who the hell is this graduate student to criticize me so anytime someone you know claims oh because i'm so great and you're just in graduate school i don't have to take your criticism seriously right They're they're nutters but we're not talking about the really important things guys like i subscribe to amazon music why does amazon music in it it's you know my soundtrack selection right which i pretty much listen to all day why does it keep pushing phantom of the opera on me Every time Amazon Music pushes Phantom of the Opera songs on me, you know I press fast forward. I don't want that crap, but it insists. It keeps pressing. It's I I, I blame some. I blame George Soros. I, I blame a shadowy global elite for trying to push Phantom of the Opera show tunes on me. They're trying to turn me gay. The elites are trying to turn me gay. George Soros is trying to turn me gay. Amazon Music is trying to turn me gay. It keeps pushing these show tunes on me. I don't want show tunes. I'll listen to Mozart. I'll listen to innumerable Ave Maria's. I'll listen to innumerable versions of uh, Hallelujah by by Leonard Cohen. Uh, I mean, I'm a flexible guy. I'll listen to Air Supply and Beethoven's Piano Concertos and Ario Speedwagon, but I will not listen to show tunes. Don't push your bloody gay show tunes on me. I'm a fad dinkum heterosexual bloke. I've been loading up on testosterone supplements, so I'm not interested in listening to show tunes. And then I go to YouTube, right? And I I select some YouTube video on cricket. And then what's the next video that YouTube pushes on me? Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Dave Rubin. I don't want Jordan, Ben, and Dave Rubin, right? They, they, They hold no interest for me. But what is it about our elites? What is it about Google? What is it about YouTube that they just force feed Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, and Dave Rubin videos on me when I bloody well don't want them? I stop them as soon as I can. But sometimes I'm out and about. and I'm just wearing my headphones. And it, like when I was doing the show yesterday, and I was taking my clothes out of the dryer, and you know the audio track ran out, and I, I was stuck. Like sometimes I get stuck, and and I'm just stuck listening to Jordan Peterson. Ben Shapiro, Dave Rubin, and I start thinking about sucking cock. I mean, do you think I enjoy like thinking about, you know, blowing dudes? I don't enjoy the prospect of blowing dudes. I'm heterosexual. I'm heterosexual in thought. I'm heterosexual in deed, but when YouTube with with their their dastardly algorithm keeps pushing this gay Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Dave Rubin content on me and like <sighs> I mean, the next moment, you're going to find me behind a, a Wendy's just blowing dudes. And it's not because I want to. It's because of the bloody algorithm. Like, why? YouTube is turning me gay. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I don't want it. Why Why do they have to keep pushing Jordan, Ben, and Dave Rubin on me? Why does Amazon Music keep pushing show tunes on me? It's not what I'm about. I am about God. I am about Torah. I am about love. I'm about service. I'm about the 12 steps. I'm about hot chicks. I'm about fun. I'm about comedy. I'm about, you know, edgy takes. I'm about hot, spicy perspectives. I'm about scintillating YouTube productions, right? I'm about bringing, you know, radical love and inclusion to the world. I'm, I, I dream of helping the world stop wanking. I dream of helping people, you know, stop Maladaptively deading. I dream about helping people bring their souls out of hiding so they can start flourishing and prospering. I don't dream about show tunes and I don't dream about, you know, blowing dudes behind a Wendy's. That bloody hell. I'm the victim here.
2: The reason that my critics are having such a hard time coming at me is because I quote them at length. They can't quote me back. And this might even be the most important thing, is the ability to admit air. So Dr. Paul Offit, a world-famous vaccine researcher who developed the rotavirus vaccine hasn't been perfect this pandemic, but he's been pretty good. I'll you know, cut him some slack. Anyways, March 2020, he said, I think this virus is going to kill about one-tenth as many people as the flu. Okay, that aged very badly, very quickly. And so what did he do? He said, he kind of made a joke, well, if you're going to be wrong about something, you might as well make an ass yourself in front of the whole world. You know, I mean, he, he admitted he got it wrong. And I'm, that's the only reason that it's worth remembering is that this is, you know, this is a model of how scientists should be when they, when they just botch something. So his credibility was enhanced. These doctors who I write about don't do that. So Marty McCarry, who famously predicted we'll have herd immunity in April of 2021 in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, and then declared that herd immunity had arrived in May of 2021. You know, did he ever write a sort of self write a, a piece of self reflection and say, you know, geez, you know, what did I get wrong? How did I underestimate this? How can I do better in the future? No, he's just out there bashing Fauci and vaccines. So all the doctors that I write about will speak about the importance of admitting air and of humility and following the data. Again, that that's what makes them more dangerous
4: than Kelly Brogan. But they don't do it. They'll never ever admit air. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think Chris has a question for you, but I just want to underscore those two points that you made, which is these two, these two red flags, which is one professing to have this unique, special insight that is, you know, everyone else is wrong. I'm telling you how it really is on, on a wide variety of topics, becoming supposedly an expert on an overnight or as someone like Brett Weinstein would claim using his unique evolutionary biology perspective to solve every single puzzle and that infallibility of never admitting being wrong. And in a situation like COVID, we should expect people to be wrong all the time, even though because it's a, you know, it's a novel situation. It's a fast changing situation. Every virus is different and so on. So, you know, and and you see the other side of the coin, which is that any misstep or any inaccuracy or any public health advisory that isn't perfectly on point is held up as an indication that the authorities are lying to us about everything. So, yeah, I, I'm, Chris has a question. I just wanted to underline your comments.
0: Look, look, they uh, they are lying to you about one thing. They're putting chemicals now. Am I crystal light classic orange that that's making me feel like I I look more and more like Ellen DeGeneres every day. Maybe I should start transitioning or or sucking cock. It's just, it's, it's the bloody chemicals in the crystal light. And there's just an absolute wall of silence in the media about why they're doing that.
2: Let me just answer uh, Chris's previous question about some of the papers that Dr. Ian Edis wrote So, and some of the ones that got panned. So first of all, in March 2020, he told us not to worry about the virus because he didn't think that many people were going to get it. And he wrote this article in Stat News, and he's like, if we assume that just 1% of Americans are going to get it and it kills you know, one out of a 1,000, then you know, 10,000 people are going to die. And he reiterated that point in another journal, paper published in a journal in March 19th, 2020, where he talked about you know, exaggerated community spread, th- this sort of thing. And this was a theme that people treated this brand new virus from day one as this very predictable sort of Sort of well-known entity. Anyways, back to the papers that he wrote. So a month later or so, he published a very controversial antibody study out of Santa Clara, California, which found a pretty high rate of antibodies about, I forget exactly what it was, about five or 6%, something like that, even though there were only two or three documented cases. And they concluded that the virus was very widespread. So Dr. Ioannidis in March, 2020 said, don't worry about the virus. No one is going to get it. In April, 2020, he said, don't worry about the virus. You know, half the country's already had it. And he didn't say half, you know, but he said the virus is much more widespread than we know about 50 to 80 times more common than people think. The vast majority of people don't have any symptoms at So whether he thought no one was going to get the virus or everyone already had it, the core theme was don't worry about it. And he also published uh, numbers that I think were impossible. For example, he published a study uh, not so long ago, claiming that the death rate for children was about one in 300,000. Something something like that, based on a survey of about 20 countries, including some with unreliable reporting, like Afghanistan. Anyways, so if you do the math, that's three per million. And there are 75 million children here in the United States. So what's 75 times three? 225. So that would mean a maximum of 225 children could die in America if every single one of them wasn't.
0: And great question from the chat. How do you know who died of what? Because all first world countries take causes of death very seriously right they take death certificates very seriously does that mean that every single death certificate is 100% accurate no but first of all countries take death certificates seriously and that is uh, a, the most reliable form of paperwork we have for delineating like who who is dying of what and we saw with the massive reduction in life expectancy that came from, from covid how COVID was just absolutely devastating to our country. The first time in something like 60 years, we had a decline in our average life expectancy, and it went down by about two years. We know from the the most comprehensive academic study that the average COVID death took 16 years of life, right? It wasn't just killing people in the last few weeks of life
2: infected. And in fact, about 2000 children have died here, as I've said already. So he just made these calculations that would require America to have about 3 billion children, just these impossible calculations. I'm sorry, I hope I went through that. Not, not too quickly and everyone can, can pay attention and my, my numbers are right. But just these, you know, these calculations that required more people to exist in a given area. That's how, how much some of these people underestimated the virus.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that is a very important detail to give because I've tangled with people online who simply retreat to Ioannidis' reputation and kind of say, who are you to question him? And the the comment that I was going to make that Matt was alluding to was actually a heuristic that I think was was helpful to spot a potential problem of, and possibly with, you know, a lot of the people that we're commenting on is his reaction to the criticism from Gideon Merowitz-Katz, right? Somebody who who critiqued his paper was to respond very personally, highlight the kind of imbalancing credentials because Gideon was still a PhD student at the time and he wrote a kind of scathing rebuttal right but but one that really came off as like more of a kind of guruish dismissal that this is local the criticism that someone of my stature shouldn't have to deal with and I think those flashes where you see like the the ego and the narcissism the kind of like buying into your own legend kind of thing that you saw that throughout the pandemic and you see throughout the guru sphere that we look at and it, it just is a, a kind of indicator, unlike as you, as you rightly... Con-
0: and uh, chat says in Canada, a total of 10 children died from COVID. Well, in the United States, more than 2,000 children have died from COVID and tens of thousands of people in their 20s and 30s have died from COVID.
1: Trusted. Paul Offit's response, because Paul Offit is somebody who at various times during the pandemic, anti-vax people have looked to, right, because he was skeptical about the need for, you know, additional boosters and, and so on. But he's always very clear about what he is arguing and he comes back and says you know, where he's been wrong and is also constantly clear that he is not ever advocating that people don't vaccinate, right? Like he he's talking about specific cases, you know, third boosters or whatever, but he's always being very clear that in terms of getting vaccinated versus not getting vaccinated, the evidence has always stacked up in favor of vaccine. So there's just such a clear contrast in that kind of response. Yeah. No.
0: yeah so overwhelmingly, people who die of COVID do have morbidities, right? So why don't they just lose weight? Well, Most people find it very, very difficult, verging on impossible, to lose significant amounts of weight. So between losing weight and getting a COVID vaccine, it's a lot easier and therefore more effective in public health terms to get a COVID vaccine than to drop 50 pounds.
2: He's he's been a staunch uh, advocate of vaccinating children, and at least with the first two doses, and I think now the first three doses, but he was initially skeptical.
0: Laponia says, if you're 5'4 or 400 pounds, it's not my problem. Bro: <laughs> No man is an island. I mean, no man's an island I- entire of itself. Like we're all part of the continent. We're all part of the main. Like if a fat guy gets washed away by COVID, like we are the less. right any man's death, even if he's five foot four or 400 pounds, it diminishes me because I am part of humanity. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee.
2: uh, Of the booster. I think that he a little bit did inadvertently give some ammunition to the anti-vaxxers. You know, he probably should have known a little bit better. I think at one point, you know, he spoke about uh, voting for this. Uh, he's part of the FDA advisory board. And he said something like the fix was in, something like that, you know, a little bit kind, yeah. of, kind of, you know, and he has been on, on Dog's podcast, which I think is problematic because Dog has definitely platformed people like, you know, Jay Bhattacharya and Marty McCary. And, you know, Zdog has declared the pandemic over many times. And he has employed the technique of mockery to a perfection, just mocking people who have tried to avoid the virus. So I think it was a, a mistake to appear on his podcast. But, you know, he's, he's admitted air. You know, I don't think he meets your criteria for gurus at all. He's not. You know, out there saying you know, everyone is wrong about everything except for me. And you know, I think when he has made errors, he's admitted it. And you know, let me be very clear that one thing that my writing in my book is about is not silencing heterodox voices. It's not about attacking people who question the conventional wisdom. And probably the best example of this, you know, if you really want an anti-guru, you should discuss this woman, Karina Kariko. I'm probably butchering her name. I should have said it enough times I really should know it by now. But this is the uh, Hungarian scientist who really did the pioneering work on mRNA vaccines at the University of Pennsylvania. And no one believed her. Every-
0: okay so this is a great story all right the woman who actually does the pioneering work on mrna vaccines doesn't want the credit doesn't want the attention doesn't want to become a guru while a guy who is fairly marginal to the development of mrna vaccines wants the credit wants to be a guru wants the attention right real intellectuals you know real scholars usually don't want the attention don't want to become gurus have no particular desire to be famous.
2: Everyone kind of called her Mm. a quack, and she was just kind of ignored and shunted away in her own lab. But lo and behold, her research and her findings paved the way for the...
0: Has Anthony Fauci admitted to any errors? Yes, he has. Overall, Anthony Fauci did a good job. Didn't do a perfect job. Did a flawed job. But overall, he was pretty good. It's hard to imagine anyone else doing his job much better. Overall, the establishment did a good job with COVID. Overall, big science did a good job with COVID it was unbelievable we got vaccines in less than a year overall our politicians and our federal reserve and our bankers right and our elites that you know, got together and they did a far better job than average far better job than i expected with regard to covid and we should be grateful come on guys we love our elites we love our establishment that way?
2: The mRNA vaccines. And she was very briefly celebrated as a hero, but she hated media. I don't know she hated, it, but she, you know, didn't want any media attention. And she's crawled back into her cocoon. She's just a scientist who wants to work in the lab bench and make discoveries, you know? That's an anti guru for you right there. And we need those sorts of voices. Holy smokes. We need people to think outside the box and make brilliant discoveries, and they shouldn't be silenced. But the people who I talk about, again, made these very basic mass errors, or there's really sort of no room for subtlety. Or, again, you know, the pandemic ended two years ago type stuff. Don't worry about variants. Or they even spoke about the virus in very positive ways, the triumph of natural immunity. That's an article written by Martin Kuldorf or Marty McCary tweeted a few years ago, natural immunity wins again. Vinay Prasad wrote some very pro-viral pieces where he talked about immunity is built through illness. It's healthy and natural when children get sick and recover. So, you know, it's a, it's a really sort of very different sort of thing. And sometimes I have seen those voices just be called thinking differently when, you know, no, it's not thinking differently when you conclude that 2,000% of American children have contracted COVID.
1: Yeah, that's. Uh, it, it sounds like the researcher you're describing. who I think I had remembered or heard of previously is like the anti Robert Malone downplaying the level of credit and attention for their contribution to the mRNA mRNA vaccine development. But uh, so one thing that we've noted and a friend of the podcast, Helen Lewis, has floated as well is that one of the like reactions to the pandemic, and I actually think you can see this in, in Joe Rogan's initial content, was you know fear. People were afraid because we didn't know how severe it was. We didn't know what the trajectory was going to be and it was spreading all around the world and, you know, people were dying and there was a lot of legitimate fear out there. And then over time, it felt like for some people, it came a point where like the vax, it's kind of that they're stating they're not afraid of the virus, right? The virus isn't a a kind of threat to them because they're healthy robust people. So maybe older, sick people need to be afraid, but they don't. And that getting a vaccine, the conspiratoriality guys have talked about this too, is seen as like a kind of taking the weak thing. You know, it's the weak-willed, like sheeple response to the virus. Whereas, you know, if you're robust and healthy and strong-willed, you won't just fall in line with what the government and health officials suggest. You'll forge your own path and you'll be able to weather the storm. And so I know... You're you're not, you know, like a, a psychologist, but but you're a psychiatrist. So what do you think about, like, that suggestion for at least motivating some of the hesitancy around around vaccinations? Like a, a kind of macho compensation, in a way, for being afraid. Yeah, no.
0: And uh, as I wind up uh, today's show, I'm going to emphasize how evil Holocaust denial is. But what's even more evil is to deny the transcendent, redeeming beauty. Uh, uh, the transcendent redeeming queer beauty right going on in the america south amid all these anti-trans laws i mean this photographer dominance documents queer beauty in the south amid anti-trans laws it's just so inspiring i mean this is quinn taken in a portrait to mark trans day of visibility just just stunning and brave i mean this is this is the kind of beauty that's going to redeem us fallen homophobic sinners like look look upon this beauty and weep right you so happily mired in your homophobia and your prejudices and your racism clinging to your guns and religion you want to cling to something that will redeem you cling to these brave queer men in the south standing up standing proud during trans days of visibility Look at this transcendent beauty, and maybe you'll be redeemed from your sins. That was Francis, he, him. This is V. Poor guy. It's become impossible for a day to go by without feeling forced to justify my right to exist, says V. Are you okay with that, homophobe? Oh, who's this delightful creature? Remembering that there are lots of people fighting for transgender individuals gives me a lot of hope, Reed says. Thank you, Reed. Trans dudes are hotter. 100% correct. To deny that trans dudes are hotter is worse than denying the Holocaust. Look at these lovely creatures. Eden is an IT professional. Asked about what brings joy. RJ says, Finding pleasures in the small things of life. Blessed are the queers and the femmes and the drag queens and the paws and the chubs the gentlest and the kinks and the sissies, the leather daddies and the campies. So beautiful. So moving. Quinn is a songwriter and a filmmaker. Being myself in the world has magnified any joy I might have experienced before. Visibility means organizing for a better future, McCall says. They, them, a farmer. Oh, look at this delightful couple. So inspiring if you ever wonder that you know, maybe maybe love is not for me like maybe it'll n- never happen you know some some say love it is a river that drowns the tender reed some say love it is a razor that leaves your soul to bleed some say love it is a hunger an endless naking need i say love it is a trans flower and you, it's only seed. It's the heart afraid of breaking, outdated, stereotypical gender norms that are imprisoning us in these, you know, folk ways and patriarchal, you know, outmoded ways. It's it's this kind of heart that just never learns to dance. It's it's the dream of gender fluidity that's so afraid of waking that never takes the chance of you know just transitioning for a while and seeing what it's like. It's the one who won't be taken by some lovely trans dude who cannot seem to give and the soul afraid of dying that never learns to live. So I say to you, I know this is controversial, but when the night has been too lonely and the road has been too long, why don't you go gay, why don't you go gay queer, trans, something like that? If you think that love is only for the lucky and the strong, just remember in the winter, far beneath the bitter snows lies the trans seed that with your love in the spring could become the rose what a delightful couple here that's Evie and Nix. classical and jazz pianist and Nick's is a gardener loves going to queer events nursing student Jordan runs a Nashville trans support group this lysome creature there's nothing more hopeful than knowing you aren't alone A strong young man. Tristan is a tennis enthusiast. He finds joy in being able to say, I'm comfortable with who I am. How inspiring. Just look at the life and the love and the vitality and the vibrance coming off these pictures. That's Theo, an activist and a student. There, August holds his gender-affirming hormones. He's been on testosterone for months. Right, Born biologically female, but is not going to be imprisoned by outdated gender stereotypes. August has a passion for musical theater and for stand-up. And he's able to find the gender-affirming hormones that have enabled his life to, to, to just blossom. August, he, him, is a theology grad student and nanny. This could be your next preacher or priest, guys. Dive deeper into the communities that cherish you. I mean, you're looking for friends, community? I mean... Look at Felix, Alvin, and Scout. Your life can be everything you dreamed it to be. You'll be a tattoo artist. Isn't it time to become an ally? Ah, look how they have transformed outdated gender stereotypes and and made them vibrant and alive. I'm going to start crying. I mean, trans joy prevails. There's nothing else i can say i just gotta go right now trans joy trans joy now prevails forever